Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today is my great pleasure to welcome Jake Jeffries to the show. Welcome, Jake. Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? Doing very well. I also have my trusty co-host, Shonday Person. Welcome, Shonday. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me here. Jake is a strategic account executive at Branch. They are a marketing attribution platform for mobile apps. And we're going to talk to Jake today about what he's learned about being uh, effective AE. I had asked one of his colleagues, Andy White, to recommend who were some of the top AEs in their company. And Andy shared that Jake had applied some new techniques in the last year and actually tripled his quota attainment. So uh, we're going to get into some of the things that he learned from Andy and from others in, in order to understand that. First, Jake, though, love to ask a get to know you question, which is to share an interesting or unusual hobby that you have. Yeah, uh, I think in the context of selling, the most interesting thing that I spend a lot of time uh, geeking out about is conspiracy theories, specifically about aliens and old world history. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with a guy named Graham Hancock, who has a series of books that are based on uh, essentially an, an old world civilization that built the original pyramids. And there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that humanity might be much older than we think. But beyond that, I think the most interesting thing about conspiracy theories is they break down such interesting storytelling elements, and you can understand how to use facts that you can prove, facts that you can't prove, and different information to connect the dots and kind of come to a conclusion. So in the context of selling, actually, I think that's one thing that uh, adds a little bit of flavor and I guess fun to my style. But I, actually, I, I think you, you, you made a good con great connection to sales because salespeople and all people in all jobs need to be effective critical thinkers. And there's, I mean, I think there are critical thinking classes, but I don't know that that necessarily teaches you critical thinking. You almost have to do these abstract things, right? Is like critically think about X conspiracy theories, critically think about whatever it happens to be. And then that that actually builds the, the mental muscle. It is a thought exercise of trying to identify because there's so much trash out there. There's nothing worse than watching 45 minutes of a discovery episode and finding out that the picture of Bigfoot was actually just a giant moss ball. And as a salesperson, you don't want to be delivering a moss ball at the end of your presentation. If you're going to be building things up, you want to make sure that you can deliver on what those conspiracies are so you can work backwards from that. So using the reality of the situation to create you know, the story elements, understanding the driving forces behind it, and having a little bit of fun. Everyone likes a surprise. Everyone likes to understand, learn something new that maybe they weren't expecting. So conspiracies offer a lot of that, and they help you critically think about whether or not this is this is true or not. And I know that um, the software that you sell is a complex engineering concept, and it's not something that many people come across outside of the world of what you do. How does your learning from storytelling and conspiracy theories relate to the way that you sell and communicate the value of your platform to your customers? My approach as a salesperson is to try to make things as simple as possible, start to finish. And that element allows me to really dumb down the more technical elements of the product into the simplicity of what it offers to our customers. So taking the end objective and being able to boil down what is a lot of complicated technical interworkings into the outcome that they should expect to receive and the level of effort that they should expect to input to get that outcome. And those facts are more important than, in many cases, the details where we can spend a lot of time. Is knowing a lot about your product important too? In my opinion, it's more about knowing it in the context of your customers. My sales approach, the beginning and the end of meetings are very choreographed. 
the sales cadence and the flow is based on a few key moments. So trying to get people to really come to the same realization of this is the problem that we have, and then we agree. This is the ultimate outcome, the level of impact that we expect that would return, and then we agree. And branch can deliver it in this you know, unique fashion compared to your other options. So it's kind of taking through that process uh, step by step. You mentioned your meetings are extremely choreographed, especially at the beginning of the end. Now I'm definitely curious about how you actually choreograph. What framework or methodology do you use to do that? So the primary methodology I use in all selling effort is uh, Medic or MedPick. And I was taught originally by my by my former manager, Andy White, who has a great book on Medic. But there's a lot of interesting qualification that you can use to try to bring people through the deal. So depending on where the deal is, I'm using first an opportunity to connect with the customer personally, then an opportunity to open them into understanding what topics we're going to talk about, what we're going to cover. And then I quickly qualify the end goal of the meeting and I say... Jeremy, if everything goes well between us today and we cover all these different topics, the next best step for us is probably going to be XYZ. If all goes well, do you think that that's going to be a good idea? 99 times out of 100, they say, yes, of course, if all goes well, let's do that. And by the end of the meeting, you can get people to almost take second meetings that they weren't even prepared to because it's the natural cadence of, yes, I did agree to that. And that makes sense to me. So in any deal... The way that you planned it doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily the way that the customer plans it. Whether or not they said yes at the end of the call, you know, things can always go sideways. Um, what are some ways to prevent or plan for those unexpected um, situations in the sales process? I think using a framework that's built on the foundations of value to your customer is a winning method no matter how you no matter how you look at it. For me, there are key moments that happen in the buying process. They don't all necessarily have to happen in the same order, but at some point we have to decide what's the scope of our project. We have to decide what kind of resource can we put towards this? What's the potential impact and the metrics that we want to measure that on? And everyone has to agree that those things add up, you know, from a mathematical and a workload type of place. So I'm always optimizing for, are we the right vendor based on our unique value proposition? Well, one of the things Shonday and I noticed when we were prepping to chat with you is that uh, you're in the UK, despite having a, uh, our listeners can clearly hear an American accent and an American background. Curious what prompted the move from the US to the UK? So I moved for, uh, for love. My girlfriend is English, and so I was working uh, for a company called Full Contact in Denver, and we had known each other from university. She did a study abroad program at Arizona State. Over that time, you know, I decided, you know what, let's make this official, and I got a new job at Branch, and then they ended up transferring me out to the UK, so I came, showed up to the interview with like, hey, I got kind of a big demand, and I had a lot of conversations with companies in the UK as well who were not willing to sponsor a new American, so the transfer route was... Uh, one of the only ones. But after about a year of time in the US, I did well, hit my quota, moved forward, and then was able to make the move here. What are some lessons learned for somebody that's trying to, and it's a little different now that everybody's remote, but there are still some companies that envision um, when we all go back to the workforce that everybody's going to be in their headquarters location. So what are some tips that people can take away if they're looking to talk to their manager or get a new job and start in a different location? Start with a very clear plan on what you want. And I think a lot of people, as much as I talk to other folks my age, have trouble mapping out their careers because they never had an idea of sort of what direction they wanted to head. Second to having a plan is really putting together a, a case for justification. 
So for me, it was because I was willing to make a bet on myself. And I said, I'll go into the US. I was nicknamed the the trash man for quite a while, actually, because any company that would want to have a conversation with branch, I was willing to pick those opportunities up. I spent a lot of time moderating different panels, doing events with marketing so that I knew and building some assurance for myself that, hey, even if I have a bad slip up where I miss my quarterly number for one quarter and that jeopardizes my move, at least I will have built a social capital around that. So it's really about planning for you know the job that you want and trying to build from there. You just mentioned that you have had or have, because it evolves, obviously a plan for where you want to be when you grow up. Was that plan limited to, I want to get to the UK so I can be with the person I love? Or, or is there a, a bigger master plan? The big master plan started uh, when I was 12. I really wanted to get this $1,000 paintball gun. I think it was about $600, a paintball gun. And I went around to the neighbors thinking, 12 years old, what can I do? I mow my own lawn. I could definitely mow someone else's lawn. And so my love of sales actually started just you know, what we all love is for money. And I do this job for the money as much as I do love helping customers and working on sales. It's an opportunity to really bring yourself forward. And so I show up to the first customer and I knock on the door and ask to mow their lawn for $5. She says, honey, $5, I'll give you 20. Go ahead, mow the lawn. And I said, wow, that was amazing. I go and mow the lawn immediately. I collect, I'm walking down the next house. I knock on the door and in my head, I'm thinking, if I ask for 20, obviously she's going to say, no, I'll give you more than that. You're a cute kid. And I really thought the cute kid was the big part of my branding. I said, hey, I'll mow your lawn for $20. She said, huh, and shut the door in my face. <laughs> so I, uh, I learned my first lesson on price conditioning. And I went, back to the five, I went back to the $5 model, which was much more successful in terms of getting new customers. And so I got some customers, mowed some lawns all summer, made my $1,000, bought the paintball gun. And then I realized that you can really kind of build anything for yourself if you're willing to go out and make a plan. And to me, it forever unlocked the idea that you know money or business success or opportunity is beyond you or that you have to follow a specific path to get there. So that was, uh, my, I guess, my first foray into selling. I've had this observation over the course of my career that when British people come and become salespeople in the U.S., there's this air of authority that's automatically conveyed to them. People just describe that accent as being something of power. I'm curious if it's the reverse. Do you, do you face any struggles having an American accent selling in the UK and Europe? Accents specifically, in the UK, uh, Americans are treated much differently than my experience outside of the UK. In the UK specifically, I like to think that it gives me an air of people thinking that I might be a little bit smarter than I am. I would like to say that it makes me sound smart. Sometimes people will say that I sound very uh, Silicon Valley, San Francisco-esque. I also had a prospect recently who is who I talk to all the time and we get along quite well, who told me he thinks all Americans are idiots and he can't believe that he talks to me so often. But if you find yourself outside of the UK, um, it's a little bit different. Inside of the UK, I think selling across the territories actually isn't quite as different uh, maybe as some people think. The one thing that is rumors are true on is the uh, European summer vacation. So quarter three is a vacation for everyone for a long time. I personally was shocked to see how many different bank holidays we get here in the US. The working attitude is very different. And so that's one thing. But beyond that, I think the actual selling culture and the ability to get deals done and what drives success is pretty much the same. Do you find that hard to adjust to the level of vacation (laughs) 
And I say that in the most American way, because um, it can be tough even on weekends to turn off for a lot of folks. And then you feel like, okay, well, if I do this and nobody else is doing it, maybe I'll get ahead, especially as a salesperson, every minute, every hour that's not spent on sales is no money, right? Was it tough or did you just embrace it? It's still tough. Uh, I personally have a, a very strong, a strong work ethic, but really I'm, I'm willing to put in the hours and I will put myself to the grindstone because those can help me really pull out the intimate details that help me sell effectively. But on the flip side, it can be very difficult, like you say, to find the balance of, you know, what is going to work and what isn't. And here in, you know, at branch in Europe at this time, we have four account executives covering the entire European territory. And so there's a lot of greenfield opportunity and you could spend all day reaching out to companies of a relevant size who might fit a ideal customer profile of some other customer we have. Even if you spent that long, you could never cover all the ground. So for us, it's all about trying to uh, rein it in. But for me, I personally struggle with that. So open to some tips. I meditate quite a bit. Uh, I do Wim Hof breathing exercises as well. Well, I, I wanted to come back to something that you said earlier about the difference in how AEs project themselves in the U.S. versus in, in the U.K. and Europe. And you'd mentioned that in the U.S., AEs try to come off as more subject matter experts and consultants. And in the UK, it's accepted that they are the salesperson and they will bring in the resources that that help you. Do, do you think in the US, the reps are actually subject matter experts or they just try to come off that way? Like, do you actually need to learn more to be a successful rep in the US about the industry and so on than, than compared to reps in the UK? I don't think you need to learn more, but I do think that all the good sales reps are, to some extent, subject matter experts and can provide legitimate insights to their stakeholders. To be able to describe the solution in great technical depth and re-engineer it from the ground up is not a requirement, but to be able to understand the details and to go into you know the level 301, 401 type of questions and to be able to answer those, I think is an important part of the sales process because what it signals to your buyer is, I understand where you need to get to. And I have specific context of other maybe companies who we've helped, people in your position, things that we can relate to, to try to get you where you need to go. And I have the experience and I've been there. And that reassurance, I think, signals in a completely different type of relationship with your buyer, where they're deciding if they want to choose you to help them get to an objective, rather than whether or not they're deciding on using your product or not. I'd love to get some of your perspectives on some amazing AEs that you have worked with over your time, either at Branch or in, in some prior companies. So who are some of the AEs that, that come to mind that you learned your game from? The original duo was a duo out of Denver, Colorado, named Andrew Voislavic and Alex Guest. Um, so shout out to those two guys. I'm sure they'll listen to this if they see the, that I'm on it. Um, they're very, very technical and very specific type of salespeople. They actually run a sales, co-run a sales consultancy now. What I learned from them is to pay attention to the details, to use data to support various insights, and to really try to map out the sales process. So they taught me the new strategic selling, and that was the first sales methodology I was ever introduced to. So they really kicked off my journey of realizing that Sales is an art as well as a science, and there's a lot to learn. How do you get started with when you're at a new company and you know that, all right, I need to have like these certain data points in my back pocket and know when to leverage them? How do you start? 
My formula is based uh, on, I mean, this is a, a force management concept, proof points. And it's not definitely not a new concept, and it's absolutely not a uh, not a novel concept. It's really taking miniature bite-sized case studies and being able to relate them in story format to your customer. So hearing the issue and being able to outline what was the challenge that this company faced, what are the positive business outcomes that they wanted to identify, what are the metrics and the specific impact, and then what was the end result. And so from there, then they can see really from a, a story standpoint. So I'm having conversations with customer success managers. I'm having conversations with AEs. What made them tick? What are the customers saying about it? How would they respond if we were asking them, you know, why did you sign this contract? And those answers are usually enough to be able to put something together. With respect to storytelling, uh, I'm reading right now Bob Iger's autobiography. He's the CEO of Disney, Bob Iger presided over the acquisition of, of Pixar. And, and again, with respect to storytelling, there's this thing called the Pixar pitch, which I love. And it's the Pixar pitch is three acts. Each act has two pieces. The first part is once upon a time and every day. And the end of act one is until one day. And then act two starts with and because of that. So there's a series of rising action. The end of act two is until finally. So that's the climax of the story. And then act three is and after that, right? So that's the uh, end results you talked about. And then the implicit or explicit act three ends with, and the moral of the story is X. But I think it fits really nicely with your framework of challenge, the positive business outcomes that can come out of that and the metrics, and then ultimately the end result. Yeah, it's a, it's a really clear format that I think we can take bite-sized use cases from. So what I'm doing as I speak to customers and as I speak to deals that we end up do successfully closing, I'm pocketing different proof points and understanding what were those different things. And then I'm using that to relate to other customers. So I used a sales velocity formula to analyze my last couple of years of sales at Branch. And this year exclusively, I moved to focus on retail accounts just because of the business uh, opportunity that we have with them, the value proposition, analyzing the close rate, the amount of time to close, average order value, just made the most sense that that's a big enough market where I can use those proof points. I can use the referenceability. And I, we have a strongly differentiated value proposition that makes it very difficult to choose a competitor in that context. So all of those factors added up to me said, this is how I can improve my close rate, improve AOV. So that was really the driving factor, but because those proof points are so strong. So that's really the foundation of success. Well, well last but not least, we wanted to talk about some of the techniques you've used in the last year in order to improve your sales performance. And uh, I know that the application of Medic was one of the, the key things that helped you get there. Everyone knows, I guess, that they should use something like Medic. What pieces were most instrumental to your success? Yeah, everyone should use Medic. Medic is a, an extremely efficient qualification criteria that I think allows me as an AE to understand the why behind the what. And what it does is it gives our customers, so beyond tracking my sales velocity, understanding you know how to use proof points, what values created with the customer, all of those are small elements of Medic. And so what Medic does is it puts an umbrella over all of the key moments that you need to deliver during the sales process. And I can track against our progress to those. So are we the vendor of choice based on the pain that we've implicated? Do we have connection with an economic buyer? Can we start to map out and eliminate the competition based on our unique value proposition? And so tracking all of these things for qualification allows me to spend time with people who have the right interest in buying. They have the right use cases. They're there for the right reasons. And because I've already pre-selected them based on our other business, 
then we can roll that together and, and put together the best you know sales playbook that we can. How do you track that? Do you maintain a scorecard that you update on each deal each week? Is there a tool that you use to do that beyond updating fields in Salesforce? Curious on the on the really tactical how side. Beyond updating fields in Salesforce, no. Actually, I prefer to do a little bit of the old school way. And I think tracking my opportunities open manually is a much better and more efficient way for me to really know them and to pay attention to them. I have seen so many failures of sales automation. And what it does is it takes the onus of understanding away from the account executive. So automating a sales sequence takes away the understanding of you know saying the type of personalized things that you need. And so in this context, I track them very closely. As a strategic account executive with a, a small, relatively small focus group of accounts, I have the benefit of working you know, no more than 10 or 15 opportunities at any given time. So I can keep track of that to a big extent. And the other thing I spend pretty much all of my time doing is training and coaching for our SDRs. I do that. I've worked with, you know, now at Branch had four SDRs and three of them have been promoted. So that's a big focus of mine because uh, I like when they set up meetings and I don't have to. If you're training a new SDR, what is the most important thing that you want them to learn? Understand the business mechanics. People avoid very often the economics of the business and the, the how behind the what. And so before medic, why does this person have any care at all about what you're doing? How can you say the thing that this person needs to hear in order to be interested in the product that we're offering? And that just comes with practice and conversation. You sound like you're a proponent of effectiveness over efficiency, right? So it's not about sending more more emails, especially with this, you know, into in strategic accounts. With, with strategic accounts, do you take a a top down approach? You take a bottom up approach, a simultaneous approach? How how do you actually get into those accounts? I like to start focusing our efforts on the person who we perceive to get the most value out of branch. That tends to be someone not quite at the C level, but just below the intersection of somebody who owns you know, the digital channels and the marketing performance. So somewhere in the middle, there's someone where those typically divide the head of digital, VP of marketing. Those people are typically where we like to start just because they're the person who could see the most value in comparison to our competition. Now, that's not to say that we're not actively doing outreach to an account map of 30 people at any given time for you know some of the bigger, more strategic accounts. But I think it's about understanding who's going to get the most value and working backwards from there. So uh, for our SDRs, it's, it's a little bit of everything. And just to pluck one more thread out of that, you mentioned uh, account mapping and relationship mapping. Is that part of your process? Do you build out either just lists of contacts or do you do visual org chart style mapping? How do you track the relationships in the account? Yeah, we do org start style mapping where I've got, I mean, even people who we probably will never reach out to or have interest in reaching out to, if you mentioned their name to me, I would know what company they work at and what their title is. I flex that name recognition and face recognition muscle a lot. If someone mentions a certain account, I can think of the three or four people who I need to speak to. And it's really helpful in the context of speaking with channel partners, or talking to other people at that business, you know, who do we need to speak to? It's helpful in the context of cold calls when they say, well, this person isn't here. And we say, oh, well, what about, and you have the next couple of names ready. But by studying as much as you can in the early phases of the deal, you can unlock a lot of value later in the deal because you've signed up for their mobile app. You've maybe purchased a product from their business. You've studied the entire org chart and built that out. So there are a lot of elements of research. I think that are just a basic requirement to be an effective salesperson. Otherwise, you're just kind of playing a numbers game. 
Are you aligned one-to-one with an SDR? It's two-to-one. Okay. And how do you manage the relationship between you and the SDRs? Like um, as a strategic account executive, what stuff do you want to make sure that you are in control of and what stuff is the SDR take total control of? I think first and foremost, I treat it as a partnership, but I also offer myself as a mentor to anyone who's an SDR. I've never had someone actually not take me up on it, to be fair. You know, there are some cases where maybe they wouldn't. But in my case, I treat it very much as an opportunity to be a teacher and to learn myself. I think it's important to always have a mentor and to mentor someone as simultaneously if you can, because it helps me crystallize the types of things that I'm trying to perfect in my sales game. And so when I'm working with my SDR, the question is not, you know, what should we be doing? How should we be doing it? It's where do you want to get to? Is it an AE position? Can I help you deliver on those sales tactics, those fundamentals? And then I'm helping them supply, you know, the details of the things that we've talked about today and how to push them into a message. And I'm editing emails and I'm working with them on strategy. So my most recent SDR is a guy named Yusuf Farkash, who's now an AE and he's uh, he's actually beating me already this year, which is a bit embarrassing, but no, he's, he's, he's doing amazing. And he's, he's, a, he's a real talented kid and he's benefited a lot from being able to take the best practices of what he's seen me deliver on and then step up forward. So he's already doing things that are beyond the level that I did because they're different and progressed from where I started. And so that's the benefit of you know, being able to learn and being able to teach because it helps you be a better learner and help you move forward faster. So that's my, I guess, philosophy on working with SDRs. Jake, you are an absolute fountain of wisdom and, and knowledge. So thank you for sharing all of your experiences with making major moves, how to sell mentorship. And I think adding in your point about be a secret shopper of your customer, and that's part of the research process, I think is also an absolutely brilliant pro move. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Sean Day. Thank you, Jeremy. Very, very good to be here. Thank you. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast. 